So each Sunday, um, before we start our worship gathering together, there's kind of a gathering up there where we walk through the service, make sure everyone's on the same page, and we pray together. And um, last Sunday, I made a really bold admission while we were up there that I had never, and I, I think I'd, I've admitted this to some of you, that I, I've never seen nor read either the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter. Um, and, and this uh, this has caused some friction with some of you guys. Uh, it especially scandalized Sarah, who noted in our Monday liturgy planning meeting that she wasn't really sure how a pastor could get this far without doing one of those things. And she didn't know if she wanted a mentor that was as unschooled as I am. Before you guys get up and walk out, <laughs> know that this week I've joyfully started the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, and I'm on the road, so have mercy on me. I'm 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 getting there. 2017 will be a big year. In fact, like I'm all in on this. Like a chili name that I didn't use. It was a contender, but I didn't use it. it was going to be the Chronicles of Carnia, um, but uh, we, we left that one on the cutting room floor. I must admit, so far I'm only halfway through the second book, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. But it's significant, just in, in The Magician's Nephew and, and what I've read so far, how much imagination is packed in these pages. I've often had to pause and consider the intersections of this kind of fantasy world with my everyday life. How many times... On just an ordinary day, there are moments which are so much more rich and full and full of grace and meaning than I often give them credit for. How Lewis, he stories these hidden worlds and entire worlds between worlds. There's so much space and beauty and danger under the surface of it all. Surplus, abundance. In truth, at any given moment, there, the, there seems like there's got to be these sorts of, of portals around us, like light posts or, or wardrobes that let us access this reality that's even more deep than what we know or what we experience as real. As Christians, we have, we have vocabulary for this, and we have tradition. Uh, Christian tradition calls these things sacraments. Right, tangible, physical displays of intangible spiritual realities. They don't just represent, they're not just pictures, but they're portals, they're means of God's grace. As we move from our January study that we just finished on Isaiah 61, this kind of identity text for us, uh, talking about oaks of righteousness and hope and healing and hospitality in Christ. And as we move towards Lent, which will start in March, we'll, when we'll study the book of Lamentations and we'll, we'll try to gather some language and, and some uh, ways to experience and grow in hope in the midst of suffering um, and to do that with others. By the way, in, in preparation open Lamentations right after Jeremiah and start reading and tell me that that doesn't speak right now um, to, to where we are. I'm really looking forward to that.
but I couldn't help but feel like we still had a little work to do in between, right? That first portion of Isaiah 61 that, that, that becomes Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4, to bring good news to the poor. Of course, this word, the Greek word for this good news or gospel is euangelion. And that's like kind of confusing if you don't see it on a paper, but that's really just two words kind of crunched together. You comes in words like euphemism or eureka, eulogy, euphoria. Like these are all good words because it means good. And angelion, which is a message or it's news, good news. Angelion is, is kind of an angel word. Someone with a message. That's what angels do in the Bible. Think about Luke 2. I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's what an angel does. And, of course, that word you might also recognize it is, is, is where we get the word evangel or evangelical or evangelism. That's where that comes from. And I know at, 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 at those words, some of us cringe. Some of us have a history with those. Some of us have a lot of baggage and get uneasy. Because, of course, evangelism is that awkward thing that you got trained to do in youth group, right? Like you learned some spiel to give, and it, it's kind of like the telemarketer steps. That it, there's a flow chart, if, yes, then, this sort of thing. Or like maybe you feel like a Jehovah's Witness when you think about evangelism. But this good news, this gospel, seems, if, if I'm reading Isaiah 61 right, this gospel seems so central to this new creation world that Isaiah is forecasting and that Jesus is inaugurating. This is more of a, a military word, a report of victory for a new Lord, for someone else who's in charge. This good news is also a report. It's a report of the density of this world, the way things really are. It's a report that should open up just how many things we look right past or run right by that are acting as as signposts or sacraments to this new creation which has begun in Jesus. And if that's the case, perhaps we need to brush up on this. Maybe we need to re-understand or re-imagine what it might mean to share the good news. This, the good news of the strange new world that we've at one time or another been called into, that we're resident aliens towards. But if we're not careful, that strange new world can, can not seem all that strange. It can be way too normal or not seem all that new. We just get used to it. We might actually find that sharing the good news does that. It, it revives the newness and the strangeness. It reacquaints us and refreshes us. It reinstills us with hope and healing and the the capacity for hospitality in the places that God's put us. But I have a few like internal objections when I think about evangelism. Like the first three things I think of is that one, 
they'll think I'm strange, right? Like if I share good news with someone, they're gonna think that I'm strange. This is my list, by the way. If, if this is on your list too, by all means. The second thing is that it's never the right time or place like to, to talk about God. But that's why I love, um, there's this rapper right now who, who says like one of his mottos is that he speaks to God in public. And it's like, oh man. Oh, that sounds like a, a worthy vocation, like especially as a, a pastor. And the third objection is that I'm not equipped. I won't know what to say. I'll just be flailing awkwardly and not have what I need. So we flash to the scripture that we just read. Paul and the Areopagus, Mars Hill, named after the Roman or, or the, the Greek god for, for war. Um, it was Athens' prime place for people to kick around ideas. It's where prevailing thoughts get sussed out. Like that translation was really great because it talks about these people, they used to just sit around all day and just talk about stuff. You know, it's like grad school. Paul enters onto the scene, and it seems that your and my worst fears are confirmed right off the bat. Number one on that list, they'll think I'm strange. Check, right? It says, this is, these are some of the things they're saying about him. What an amateur. You've told us some strange things. And then later, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule Paul. So right off the bat... It seems that preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection struck even these cultured folks, deeply schooled in Epicurean and Stoic thought as, well, as foolish <laughs> or as crazy or maybe even possibly as dangerous. For Paul the Apostle, like we, we always call him the Apostle Paul, and again, we take that word apart, and apostle is a sent one. It's one especially with a message. There's the word for, our word for postal is like built into his title, what he is and what he does. And Paul immediately kind of embraces this, they'll think I'm strange excuse. For him, it's maybe more of a badge of honor than it would be a barrier. He owns it. Paul goes from town to town because he knows that apart from the God who actually became one of us, living the sort of life humanity was always supposed to live and dying a death indicative of what happens when the world's sin meets God's righteousness, and then God busts the old paradigm by raising that Lord and Savior from the grave, something that never happened but now becomes a new paradigm, people remade into a remade image of God, joining in his eternal kingdom now, all because God can't and won't sit back and watch creation spiral into its own destruction and distance and brutality and fragmentation. Paul knows, like, that is unbelievable. No one should believe that except for it's true. I think that's what's driving Paul's proclamation. He said, this is crazy talk if it wasn't absolutely truer than anything else. 
in all its unlikelihood and foolishness, it's truer than any other story of where this world's going. And for Paul, and I think for us, to walk around looking like idiots struggling to put words to this is actually a good practice. <laughs> so for us to, to walk around struggling to write songs or poems about this or to raise our kids to take this sort of weird, wild dream of a reality for granted, that's kind of to grow in the humble likeness of Jesus. <laughs> you know, Jesus, the one who was saying all this and doing all this, but people couldn't or wouldn't believe. Jesus, the one that people would rather kill than trust. So if people are rejecting you, good. <laughs> You're getting part of it right. And then there's the whole, it's never the right time or place thing, right? Again, I get it. These, this is my list, okay? You can maybe make your own list later. One of the biggest examples of this comes for me when I feel like I've missed my chance to say something. Like there was this big opening of, of a friend or a neighbor or someone in my family, but I've long passed it. You know, it's like when your neighbor moves in, you get a new neighbor, and if you don't greet that new neighbor in the course of about four or five months, you're probably never going to get the, to know that neighbor because it's super awkward after you missed your moment. Um, I think this is also why it's really hard to talk about family or maybe even, like, best friends about God because it just seems like that ship has sailed. We have these deep, worn grooves of what type of relationship and what type of things we talk about, and that's not really it. But I have this, uh, I'm kind of developing this little personal axiom to help me with these things. I think Paul would approve of it. It's, it's that when, when things start to feel too big or too intimidating or too insurmountable or discouraging, make it smaller make it simpler, and make it more familiar. Like, that's it. When it's too big, get small. Like, that's, the, that's what I'm, I'm starting to personally learn. And so we see Paul with this big, educated forum of people, and he simply just starts where he is. He realizes he's talking to folks who know their stuff, so he starts quoting their favorite authors. He looks around and he sees an empty platform with a plaque inscribed for worship to an unknown God, and he sees an opening, right? Not like a home run, just an opening, just a crack so he can kind of test the waters or elevate the conversation. Don't get hung up on how dramatic the scene seems or how masterful Paul like navigates these waters. All he's doing is starting where he's at. All he's like he's like a uh, like a an improv actor or, or or a comedian who just like grabs cues out of the crowd and just goes with it. Just says yes to the next thing. All he's doing is trying to connect with who he's talking to and what they care about. 
He says, I've carefully studied you. <laughs> He's trying to figure out what's important to them, what their driving myths and assumptions are, what their history is, what their hurts are, what their fears are, what are their assets, what are their gifts. Essentially, all the same <laughs> things you find out over the course of time about anyone you care enough to ask a question and listen to the answer, that's kind of what Paul's doing. So like, let's not make this more of a thing than it is. Paul's learning how to be a good neighbor. <laughs> a dear friend of mine and a leader in the Ecclesia Network that, that we're part of, J.R. Briggs, some of you met him last January when he came here. He has a saying for their church in, in uh, Philly called Renew Community that, that their folks want to strive to be missionaries cleverly disguised as good neighbors, right? Missionaries cleverly disguised as good neighbors. I think, I, I like this mantra because I think it's subtly committed to a, a couple things. I think it's committed to making each of like the ordinary, normal, neighborly experiences of our lives super thick and meaningful. To become a good neighbor is, is it's a long play consisting of daily care and intentionality and generosity. It, it's other-focused and self-giving because it wants to contribute to the flourishing and welfare of others because my good is bound up in their good. And it's, it, it's committed to to serving and loving exactly the person in front of you right now, and then the next one, and then kind of operates in concentric circles outward. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. It means that, as poet uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins puts it, that Christ plays in 10,000 places. Like we, everywhere we look around, there's, there's this Christ to serve and this Christ to meet in a neighbor. Everywhere we already are is already important, and it already bears grace in eternality if we have expectation and imagination, if we have eyes and ears to sense the Spirit's movement and, and then courage to try to put words to it, even, like, not great words, stumbling, muttering words. That's why in the Bible there's so many characters that get to be God's mouthpieces who, on their own merit, don't know how to speak. <laughs> Moses doesn't know how to speak, and he becomes the one who speaks God's law to God's people, the one who stands up for God's people against Pharaoh. Lastly, we often assume that we're just not equipped. Like, in the New Testament, there's also the, these passages that talk about gifts. Like in Ephesians, it talks about some of our apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds. And so we, we often get off easy, like, like with um, like Myers-Briggs, you know, like, it's like Myers-Briggs, if you test to be an introvert and someone wants you to do something outgoing, you just say, I'm an I. I, I, I can't. You know? And so with this, we say, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have that gift of evangelism. Often, 
in this is, is that that's not who I am, but it's also that I don't have what I need. That kind of deep down, it, it's this insidious thought that there's not enough. Like, I don't have enough to be that for someone else. And so one response is that you shut down. You say, I can't do it. The other response is that you just work harder. You train and you learn and you try to shore up like ironclad defenses and arguments and, and you try to overwhelm someone with how much you've made for yourself. But what if all of us already are equipped? What if we're being equipped? What if we do have everything we need? What if there really is not only enough, but what if there's more than enough? What if we're never tasked with bringing God into relationships because God has already gone before us and we're just trying to catch up? Like, what if we'll never meet someone who does not bear the image of God? And what if we, we've never met someone for whom God's spirit is not already well at work in their lives in some way? Our passage says, Paul, Paul's talking to them, he says, what you worship as unknown I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life and breath and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. If that's the case, that God is familiar with this world because God made it, God gave it life and breath, God made it tick, and God cares enough to go on a search and rescue mission, if God is indeed this near to us, it means that we need to reclaim another word many of us cringe at, is witness. Because that's what we are called to be, witnesses. Because a good witness is one that gets out of the way and tries to remember well. Remember what we've seen. Remember what we've experienced. Tries to see accurately so that we can speak with some fluency and some clarity about what we've seen and what we've known. Not what we've generated, but a good witness bears truth in our bodies. Like the Greek word for witness is the same word for martyr. <laughs> That's what martyrs do, is they bear witness to something that is ultimately stronger than even death. Carry a, a martyr, a witness, carries a history of what God has done to us, and that is so strong. That's what people want to hear. That's what people want to see. So let me give you a few examples of this sort of witness, this sort of restoring. And some of these are just kind of examples that I've, I've just heard this week. Uh, out among among you guys, so you don't need to 
it's not really something that we need to start. It's, it's mostly something we need to continue to, to cultivate and when we see it, affirm it and, and keep going in this. For instance, um, Meg Hoffman was telling us in this meeting about this time at this, at this potluck she had joined with other, other moms in Durham and it was like this feminist kind of activist potluck and, and her kind of role in that was the oddball Christian for whom uh, not a lot of people in that group could understand why a Christian would care about women. <laughs> You know, um, and, and like that was the start of her witness in this this essentially strange place for her to be. Or, or I, this week I got text from Joe Longarino um, talking about canvassing for for this uh, grad student unionizing and, and talking about how how strange um, it was that he got a chance to talk about Jesus with some of the people he was standing shoulder to shoulder with for this cause, and they thought it's so odd that God would care about something like this. Again, I think you'll find most of these in these kind of in-between liminal spaces that we find ourselves, that most people are surprised as anything that the God who created heaven and earth actually cares about heaven and earth, <laughs> you know? And, and, the, and that's our, our job to, to start to sort that out. Or the other day, I, uh, uh, Pastor Ricardo from Canoe knocked on my door and, and said, there's a bunch of stuff going on over at Emerald City, which is the nightclub around the corner uh, where there was a shooting last Saturday, early morning. And so we went over there, and I, I found myself in the middle of this room, um, mostly quiet, and then them asking, essentially, why I was there and what I hoped to achieve about being there. And, and the only words that came to mind are, is that perfect love cast out fear, and it seems like there's a lot of fear based around this man made in the image of God, this 30-year-old man, Stacy Nichols, who lost his life. And, and, and I don't exactly know what that means, but it, it felt like witnessing and testifying to something that I know to be true and something which I see lacking. Or I think this week about in our house, <laughs> in, in Rachel's life and work, constant work with our kids, about something as basic as speaking kindly to one another, um, but her very intentionally framing it in, in the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another and build each other up. And we have this posted in our home, and it's this plaque and a reminder. And, and the kids actually kind of get it sometimes. Like once out of every like 10 times, they kind of get it. And, and that is a witness to the fact that like we're, we're not building this home around things that we think are good ideas, but around things for which God said... <laughs> This is how God's people thrive. This is how you follow me, by loving your neighbor. And your neighbor might be your little brother, and that's the hardest thing ever. Or I think, especially in, in kind of these sacramental terms, about how these things that are just super heavy. Like, it's a thing, but it's kind of more than a thing, right? That's what each week when we come around this table, it's just super dense and heavy over here 
because we know this is bread, and we know that it's, it's juice, and we bought it at Food Lion, and then God turns it into this thing in which we commune, in which we become part again and again. We, we reunite with the body of Christ through the ages, let alone through our city and country and world, and, and, and we, we re-graft into this body, and it's super heavy. And I, I hope that's, that's what this potluck in a couple weeks, um, this all-church potluck is going to do. Again, that's, a, that's another example of the if it's, if it's really big, get small sort of mentality. Um, and I think that those, those interact well, sacraments and that mentality, because these things are so heavy and so dense that even just a little bite kind of bears a whole world and plenty enough for us to chew on. So I, I, I've been feeling so, so helpless and so heavy and so small in this, in this current climate in this world and, and trying to advocate and unite with people who don't look like us largely. Um, and and so, so then we just turn our eyes to our neighbor, and we realize, like, we have these neighbors for whom we should be breaking bread with, and not just serving, but also receiving from, and interacting with, and learning from, and, and if we want to advocate for refugees, we have an entire church of refugees on the premises, right? Um, so again, like, that action, that learning process, that participation preaches something good, <laughs> preaches something new. I, I, I think the whole of it, um, it's part of the good news, but it also bears that good news that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that the Holy Spirit is raising the dead all around us and bringing new creation to bear. We do that when we eat together. We do that when we spend time with people for whom would have no natural inclination to be around except for Jesus. And that's preaching the gospel. The thing about witnesses is that, that telling the story, it, it's, it's for who we're telling the story to, but it's also for us, right? When you tell a story over and over, you get to know that story, and you are affected again and again by that story. Witnesses understand that God has already been there and that Christ is embedded into the poor, that Christ has become one with suffering, that, that Christ is in the middle of conflict and unpeace so that he can bring about restoration and healing. And that happens slowly by the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So when we do these things, it, it preaches good news to ourselves. By, by, by being an evangelist, we effectively evangelize ourselves. We also evangelize each other. <laughs> that, that there's the first song that, we, uh, that Katie played today before a lot of us were here. Um, it's a song, Take to the World, and it, it, it's a little bit of an oddity of a song um, because it, it, it is mostly about God, but it's mostly to each other in building the body up 
to take this world or take this word to the world. And that's what preaching the good news does. So to close, you're always supposed to close with a really apt summary um, to go with. And, and I couldn't think of a more succinct summary of what witness does or what witness is than this short four-line poem from Mary Oliver who gives us instructions for living a life to pay attention, to be astonished, and to tell about it. So I'll leave you with that, and let's pray. Lord, give us the courage and the wherewithal and the expectation to pay great attention to this thick, dense world that you've made uh, for which we're, we're just scratching the surface of. Help us expect um, as we go to, to meet you there, um, waiting for us to catch up with your work in this world. Lord, meet us in our astonishment. Help us as witnesses of your work not forget how amazing your grace is or how good and new that good news is and then Lord give us words and um, relationships and um, circumstances to tell others all about this all about your goodness which we've tasted and which we've seen the hope which you provide for this world that you've not abandoned but that you've made and that you understand intimately and that you're bringing to renewal and back to yourself, that you heal this world through slow, natural processes, but also um, by, by interrupting and entering in to the, the hurt and the, the bad effects of sin and death. And Lord, make us hospitable people, um, always preparing an empty seat um, ready to entertain um, whoever you might put in our midst, uh, whether people hard um, to be with or people um, easy in some ways. Lord, um, let, let, us, let us always expect uh, to meet you in this world. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.